thank you, Kevin. Uh, thank you, Greg, for leading us, and it's an honor to be with you guys here this morning. Again, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Great to see you here. Again, if you're watching online, thank you for watching online. Uh, you're catching us in part, I don't know what, of this series. I think it's part 10 of this series um, that we're calling Free From That. And I've got to be honest with you, if you've been here for a little while, I'm going to tell you something that you know. And if you haven't been here before, totally fine. I'm going to tell you something now that maybe you didn't know. There's an elephant in the room around what I've been teaching for the past 10 weeks. There's a big elephant in the room because I've been declaring that Christians are free, free, free from all of the stuff that used to bind us and bond us together, that we are actually free in Christ in such a complete way that it actually can be kind of scary. And it puts an elephant in the room because if you're free the question becomes what do you do with that freedom and i figured the best way to scare an elephant away is to bring its arch nemesis into the room right and so i introduce to you a classic piece of english literature if you give a mouse a cookie do you guys know the story uh, no response. Does anybody know this story? We have some people in the back. Librarian friends, thank you very much. If you give a mouse a cookie, Laura Numeroff wrote this. I believe at least that's what's up here. Here's the story if you've never heard it. Listen up. Here we go. If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk. And when you give him the milk, he'll probably ask you for a straw. And when he's finished, he'll ask you for a napkin. And then he'll want to look in the mirror to make sure he doesn't have a milk mustache. And when he looks in the mirror, then he might notice his hair needs a trim. So he'll probably ask for a pair of nail scissors. When he's finished giving himself a trim, he'll want a broom to sweep it up, and he'll start sweeping. He might get carried away and sweep every room in the house. And he may even end up washing the floors as well. When he's done, he'll probably want to take a nap. And he'll have to fix up a little box for him with a blanket and a pillow. He'll crawl in and make himself comfortable and fluff the pillow a few times, and he'll probably ask you to read him a story. So you'll read to him from one of your books, and he'll ask you, he'll ask to see the pictures, and when he looks at the pictures, he'll get so excited that he'll want to sign his name with a pen, and then he'll want to hang his picture on your refrigerator, which means he'll need scotch tape, and then he'll hang up his drawing and stand back to look at it. Looking at the refrigerator will remind him that he's thirsty, and so he'll ask for a glass of milk, and chances are if he asks you for a glass of milk, He's going to want a cookie to go with it. Isn't that wonderful? You are dismissed. <laughs> just kidding. I mean, you, anyway, you can always leave whenever you want to, just to be clear about that. What is this story teaching these kids? It, it's, teaching, it's teaching this reality. We have a proverb for this in our life, in our world that we use all the time. And it, I'm going to give you the first part of it, and you fill out the second part of it. Here's what it is. If you give an inch, they'll, you know this one? Absolutely, absolutely. I heard that murmuring through the crowd. If you give an inch, they're going to take a mile. That, my friends, is the elephant in the room. That's the elephant in the room on freedom. Hey, if you give them an inch, they're going to take that mile. If you give them that freedom, watch out. It's all going to fall apart. Hey, this was taught to me when I was younger about alcohol, for example. If you even take a drink, a sip of that, do you know that a sip is all that it takes, and then you're going to be addicted? You're going to turn into a raging alcoholic. You're going to disappoint God and others if you just take one drink. Anyone ever hear that one before? Hey, this happens all the time. If you're 10 minutes late for work today, then tomorrow you might be an hour late, and then at some point you're going to stop showing up for good. 
Don't even be 10 minutes late. In fact, 10 minutes early is still late, right? This happens in the church too, doesn't it? I mean, in our church history book, I read it a couple weeks ago, there was a time we had men on one side, women on the other, and the, the message was, boy, if we ever put men and women together, you know what's going to happen then? They're going to start, like, looking at each other instead of paying attention to God. Then at some point, they might even hold hands during the service or whatever, and we can't have that kind of thing because we're here, you know, to worship God. If you give an inch, they're going to take a mile. Now, that kind of thinking, that kind of thinking is what we call the slippery slope thinking. Slippery slope thinking is actually very, very common. It's been very common in our world, especially in the past couple of years, but is a very common way of thinking. And the slippery slope has three problems with it, at least. The first is this, that slippery slope thinking is based on emotion and not evidence. It is based on emotion and not evidence. We get all riled up about a cause of some kind, and we are deeply emotional about it, and it is based primarily on emotion and not evidence. And the primary emotion that it's based on is fear. And fear works to motivate people. Guilt also works to motivate people. Fear, guilt, and shame work to motivate you. But you know this. If you are a child and you grow up with a slippery slope thinking taught to you, this is why you should, for example, avoid these kind of movies or avoid you know, drinking entirely, or this is why you must always do this, because if you get an itch, you're going to take a mile. You can't control yourself. It's just going to be the way it is. When you grow up later and realize, you know, not everybody who has a drink turns into a raging alcoholic. Be what happens is that your argument, and here's the second problem, slippery soap thinking actually weakens our arguments. You grow up and you think, this is why I must hold the line, and later you realize, actually, there's not really evidence for what was taught to me and kind of guilted into me and what I became afraid of, and then you begin to reject and push back. And, and slippery th slope thinking, while it is intended to strengthen our arguments, it actually turns around to weaken our arguments. Now, the biggest problem in my mind with slippery slope thinking is this, what it's based on. I would say this, that slippery slope thinking assumes that behavior is best controlled by more or better rules. That's what is the assumption, that if we will have more or better rules, we can control behavior. Now, I will, I will be the first to say I am grateful that I live in a civilized society on the whole, okay? One could argue that, depending on the day. But I've taken some mission trips in my lifetime. Maybe you've traveled as well. I remember being in a, on a basketball mission trip to the Philippines years ago, and we were in a, like a 15-passenger van trying to leave Manila uh, before, you know, curfew or whatever, because there's so many people in Manila. There's only a certain amount of time you can be in that city. And as we were leaving the, the city, we got pulled over by a cop. Well, the cop leans into our driver's side window with a sawed-off shotgun, sending a message of like, <laughs> if you don't, I mean, here we go. What he's saying is, bribe me right now. He's inviting the driver, pay me or things are going to get worse. And so what does our driver do? He, he pays him. Pays him whatever it was, 500 whatever it was, or 1,000 whatever, and he's off and done. And the bribery system in our in Manila, it just replete throughout. I am grateful that in North America, when I get pulled over, if that ever were to happen, ever, this is hypothetical, <laughs> solely hypothetical, that I do not expect 
an officer to lean into my window with a sawed-off shotgun demanding a bribe rather than just enforcing the law. I'm grateful that we live in a civilized society. I've been to the DR. Some of you have been overseas before. And when I'm in the DR, there are little motos that zip around all over the roads. It's ridiculous to me because I'm so not used to it. They are violating so many laws of North America in the Dominican. But nobody enforces them because it's a different country. And I'm grateful that we don't have to train our drivers to drive like that here. So I'm grateful to live in a civilized society. However, slippery slope thinking assumes behavior is best controlled by more and better rules. And friends, this is just not true. It's a mistake, I would argue, to think that rules actually control anyone. One of my driver ed teachers at Peckway Valley when he was teaching me, Mr. Hutchinson, and he, would, he was funny. Some of you know this guy. He would tell me, he's like, Rogers, I've never seen a stop sign stop anybody. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like, I've never actually seen a stop sign come out of the ground and physically stop that car. What stops the car? The will of the driver or the lack of will of the driver. He's right. The rules don't actually stop you. The red light doesn't stop you. Your willingness to stop or your fear of getting caught will stop you, but the rules don't do that. We know this is true because if this were false, in other words, if more and better rules controlled us, can you imagine where we'd be now? For the past two years in our country, do you think more and better rules have helped to make us more civilized? See, more and better rules don't do anything to control our behavior. More and better rules don't actually control anybody. That's just the way it is. And I would argue this, that in faith, like in life, we can make the mistake that more or better rules will keep people in order. We can make that same mistake. Here's the rules for what we do on a Sunday, friends. Here's the rules for how we engage in Christian thinking, friends. Here's the rules for what you can do and what you can't do. Here's the rules for confession. Here's the rules for how families engage. Here's the rules that more and better rules will keep people in order. And there is a fear, and there is a real fear in the earliest versions of the church, as Christianity was just starting to take root, there was a real fear that if you get rid of all of the rules that have kept people in worshiping God in order, if you give an inch, they're going to take a mile, and things are going to get as crazy as if you give a mouse a cookie, it's going to go crazy. Because what the early church was dealing with by the guy named Apostle Paul he wrote about this in the book we're going to look at in just a minute. What they were doing is they were wrestling with this issue of can we get rid of? And Paul was arguing in his speech about freedom and his writing about freedom. He's arguing that, friends, we can get rid of the rule of the Sabbath. You can get rid of the rule of the Passover. You can get rid of the rule of the Feast of Tabernacles. You can get rid of the rules for confession the way that we always used to do them. You can get rid of all of those rules, and that is a huge claim, and it creates incredible problems because people over and over and over again assume that we need more and better rules to keep behavior under control. It's a mistake in faith and in life to think that more or better rules will keep any of us in order. There actually is, I would argue, a better way than more or better rules. That is what Paul writes about in the section that we're in this morning, and I'm just going to give it to you now in case you fall asleep 
or whatever it might be in the next few minutes, here's what I think Paul is saying and here's what I want to say this morning, that love, not law, is the better way. That love and not law is the better way. Now, rather than just have me tell you this and you decide if you agree or not, I want you to engage with what Paul had to say when he wrote in some of the earliest collection of writing we have around the early church in the letter to Galatians chapter 5. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. There's one around you. That's our gift to you if you don't own one. But Galatians chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 13. And this, I think, is the claim that Paul would make, that there's a better way, there's a better way to handle our freedom than legislating it, because law, rules, actually do not create the kind of life and freedom that we were designed for. Let's look at it, and then you can decide. Beginning at verse 13. He writes there, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. This is coming on the heels of several chapters of him saying the same thing. But there is in that one space between the period and the beginning of the next sentence, there is a silent objection that sits here. It's the elephant in the room. He said, you're called to be free. And then he addresses the silent objection that wasn't so silent in that church, in that early church, and isn't so silent in all of our churches. He says this, but, even though you were called to be free, he says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Let's talk about what this means. Again, he says, you're called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. When we use our freedom to indulge the flesh, here's the question we're asking. We're asking, how much, how much can I get away with? How much can I get away with? Listen, I'm going to be honest. I ask that about how many calories I intake every day. Jen just made a, a wonderful chocolate cake last night, bunt cake with chocolate chips in it and chocolate icing over it. I mean, we had the full event, right? So I'll tell you what I'm sitting there thinking, like, how much can I get away with? right? Like, I would like two or three or four more slices, but how much can I get away with? In other words, what is the line that I can go to so that I don't violate something, my own health, right? What is the line that I can kind of get up to? I want to indulge my flesh to a certain point, but at that point then, what is the line? We also ask that in relationships in the church and in society. If you're dating, have you ever asked that question? What is the line that I can go to physically with the girl that I like or the guy that I like? What am I actually allowed to do before marriage? What counts and doesn't count? How far can I indulge my flesh before I cross the line? I mean, I know I'm supposed to forgive 70 times 7, but how much can I indulge myself and hold on to bitterness and resentment before I forgive? Where is the line until I actually violate it? What I want to know is I want to indulge to a point, but I want to know what the line is, and that's what's behind this indulgence. Don't indulge the flesh. 
He said, it's the wrong question to ask. It's not just how much can I get away with. The question, the different question for the Christian becomes not how close can I get to a line as if the line or the law will ever stop you. The stop sign doesn't stop you. Your will stops you or it doesn't. That's not the question. The question becomes, what is the loving thing to do here? It's a different question. It's a different assumption. It's a different north star. The law doesn't direct. Love directs. And so I think in my relationships, how do I lovingly date and honor the gender, the opposite sex, whoever I'm dating. How is it that I lovingly engage you when I'm upset with you? How is it that I lovingly work with you and you work with me? Not how much can I get away with or how much can I intake? He says, rather, serve one another. That's what he means there. Serve one another humbly in love. And why does he pick this? Of all the things he could pick, he picks serve one another humbly in love. He explains it in verse 14. The reason that he finishes verse 13 the way it is is because of 14. He says, for the entire law, all of the rules, all of the order, all of your civilized society, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what he's saying. It all points there. If you and I could actually get this nuance down, it all, he says, points there. You can follow all the sub-rules if you want to, friends, but ultimately it is pointing up here. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is in line with Christ's invitation to love. Jesus was already clear that all of the law and the prophets hang on this idea of love. This is why, and you know this is true, this is why we have a speed limit, so that I cannot mow over people on the road because I'm going too fast that I can slow down. This is why we have laws that are built on love. I may not think they're loving when I want to build something in a place that's not zoned to be able to build what I want, and I apply for a variance and I don't get it. But behind that is a desire of a community to act in love. Whether I see it all the time or not, that's what laws are in their best interest intended to do. And so what Paul is saying here, and this is so important, is that what Jesus has done when he came to the earth and he set a new covenant, he said, a new command I give you, love one another. When Paul is threatening their whole way of living, the whole way of functioning with one another, removing the Sabbath, removing the old traditions, moving on with all of that, that Christ is now the fulfillment of the law, and that when Christ said, love is, love becomes the fulfillment of law in Galatians 5.14. What Paul is calling people to do is not new, but it is original. What Paul is calling people to isn't new, it's going back to the original. The original intent of the law is what Paul is calling people to. It's the original intent of the law of what Christ is calling people to. That we were always designed to be historically people who would love God and love others, which is what Christ calls us back to. And so, friends, when we see in the New Testament Paul pushing hard that love is the fulfillment of the law, it's not as if he's introducing a new thing. He's reintroducing what was original. The law itself, the rules, are an extension of love that we have experienced. And now the call back to love isn't a brand new spanking thing. It actually is a return to the original intent 
as the law began. Now, the problem with, with this is if we don't do this in verse 14, we see what happens in verse 15. If we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, verse 15 is this, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. If only, <laughs> if only this were applicable today, if only I have ever seen something like this happen, I don't know if you've ever seen this, people arguing about what the law of the land should be. Has anyone ever experienced that? Don't raise your hand. Don't point out people. Has anyone ever experienced the biting and devouring as we debate which are the best rules to follow, which is the best law of the land to follow? Maybe if we had a different leader here and a different person there, maybe that would finally help us get to wherever we think we should go, as if more or better rules are the North Star. And we simply know by experience they're not. And so Paul says again, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, you'll be destroyed by each other. So what's Paul's advice? He goes into verses 16 and 17. In a nutshell, he puts it this way. Here's what you should do. So I say, here's how it walks out. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I'll be honest, if only it were that simple, right? If only it were that simple to say, well, well, here's what you do. Here's what it means to love each other. Just walk by the Spirit. Everybody cool with that? Good. Go home, have a good lunch, walk by the Spirit, figure it out. Good stuff, right? There's not a lot of arguing on that point, right? Like, it makes, makes sense. Okay, let's walk by the Spirit, sure. But what does it actually mean? You know, Paul gives a very insightful comment in here that I want to draw your attention to. Right before verse 18, at the very end of verse 17, he says, they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. He introduces that phrase to me is so important. He introduces a check in our system. What he's saying is, friends, all of a sudden, you're free, right? You're free, but we have impulses of how we want to react to one another. I have an impulse of how I want to react when someone thinks differently than I do, when they disagree with me, when they push back. I have an impulse of that. I have fleshly impulses all the time. When I'm driving, every now and then I have impulses. When I'm in my, the privacy of my own uh, mind and heart, I have, I have impulses. I have thoughts that come in all the time. And maybe, maybe you can relate to that. And what Paul is saying is, he's saying right in that moment, in that impulse, in that part of you that is about to act, about to think, about to do that, he said, you are not free there to do whatever you want. Oh, you, Christian, are not free to do whatever you want to do next, and that is my mistake often. I feel like I'm free, and so I will just act on the impulse. I will say it. I will write it. Or even worse, I will think it and hold it in and not tell you about it, but I will hold my bitterness against you for a little while, punishing you silently because you've hurt me. And he said, you are not free to do whatever you want. It's in that moment where he says, walk by the Spirit. You're not free to just do 
whatever you want. And he goes on to clarify it. He puts it this way. He said, let me be clear. Let me walk out what happens when you do. Here's what happens when you do. And when I do whatever I want, verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you have ever encountered these set of verses before, these seem like very drastic statements, all right? I mean, is anyone, when's the last time someone's accused you of witchcraft? I'll, I'll wait. Raise your hand. When's the last time someone's accused you of that, right? These, these comments are really strong. And so my, my instinct is to kind of read over and be like, yeah, that, you're right, Paul. Yeah, that, that, that's right. But that's so distant for me because I'm not involved in witchcraft, man. I mean, come on. I want to encourage you. I want to read it again. I want to slow it down. These, these characteristics come in groupings, about three or four groupings in here. Let's read it from a different lens. I'm going to read it again, and I want to invite you to slow down with me and maybe humble your heart a little bit in this space, too, and see, is there anything here that's true about me, that's marking me in that instinct and impulsive part of my heart? He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, the first three in a group, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. What's he saying there? Hey, any moment... Any moment, when you act, when you feel a sexual impulse for impurity or excessive indulgence, when you engage and think about the opposite sex or the same gender in a way that is impure, unright, that this is the space where we're not free to do whatever we want and act on those urges and act on those impulses. It's in that space where he speaks to the acts of the flesh. And he goes on. Idolatry and witchcraft, he puts together. Idolatry and witchcraft. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Idolatry, again, I don't, you're not accused of doing witchcraft. I haven't been. But here's what I do know, that I have idols almost everywhere I turn. I have the idol that maybe you do of acceptance, wanting people to like me, wishing that everybody would affirm what I do. And therefore, sometimes I try to manipulate outcomes in order to get that. Maybe you have the idol of appearance, wanting people to make sure that you look just right all the time, and the mirror is your God. Witchcraft, that sounds really weird, doesn't it? <laughs> who does that? But listen, any time that we're following a God who is not the God of the Bible, any time that we move off the truth of the Scriptures, we're moving into that space, something different than God. Have you ever been in that space of idolizing yourself, people's opinions of you or others, in a way that's been higher than God. He goes on. He said, here's another grouping, and the next several words come together. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, all in one grouping. Friends, we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen that. In our country, in our county, in our area, Hatred, discord, jealousy, yeah. You've been jealous of people? You ever look around and social media just drives up your envy and anger that you don't have the beauty that she has and you don't have the strength that he has and, you know, what they present in their home and the way that their kids are being raised just seems amazing. You're sitting there 
being provoked. There's an impulse in you for envy, for jealousy. Fits of rage, sometimes that's silent. Most of us, we keep that silent because it'll cost us too much socially to get that out. But it's there, isn't it? Selfish ambition, doing something because I wanted to, dissensions, factions, and envy. And then he goes on, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's, again, about excess. It's about losing ourselves and escaping, trying to find escape things outside of God. So, friends, I find myself here, all right? It's not as extreme as it first might sound. But Paul doesn't leave us there. Verse 22, he gives us an alternative. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit... The fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And such a key comment that comes next, against such things, there is no law. That is why this is higher than the law. This is why love is higher than the law. This is why walking by the Spirit is the higher value than just more and better rules, because against these things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And since we live by the Spirit, he says, let's keep in step with the Spirit. And so we have to ask the question as we think about our lives, verse 22 into 23. Are these characteristics, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, are these things, and here's his point, guiding my expression of freedom? You are free, Christian. You are free not to do whatever you want, but you are free now to walk by the Spirit, to let love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control guide you. Because against those things, there is no law, which is why you are free. He finishes with a warning. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And that you have seen and I have seen, that is what happens when law and not love is our North Star. That is exactly what happens when we fight about what are the more and better rules that we need to govern our behavior. We don't need those because those laws never control us in the first place. So is it true? Give an inch and they'll take a mile? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not for freedom in Christ. It's different. And the reason it's different is this. Again, I'll make the case, I think Paul makes the case, that love and not law is the better way. Love and not law is the better way. More and better rules in church, in your faith, in your walk with Christ, in how you engage with your coworkers and your friends, that will never help us. Not ultimately. But in the moment... We have some things to think about. So a couple things I just want to say, and I'm going to wrap it up. I want to encourage you this way, something to avoid. I want to encourage you to avoid slippery slope thinking. Please, I would plead with you on that. I've been convinced over my younger years of many things that have been in this camp. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that I've been manipulated by people who are afraid that if you give an inch, they'll take a mile. 
and that hurts. And some of you may have had that experience with the church. You may not have. But it hurts when you have been taken down a road and told that something is going to happen. If this happens, then this happens, and this happens, and this happens. If you give an inch, they're going to take a mile. And friends, even within this church, we have that history. And I don't condemn it. It's just reality. We had the fear of moving men and women into the same side of the church. We had the fear of drums coming into this service. What will happen then? We had the fear of changing our dress code. What will happen then? If you do this, then this will happen. If women stop wearing skirts and start wearing pants, you know, blah, blah, blah. If men stop wearing suits and start wearing, you know, button downs. Beware in your parenting. Beware in your leadership of slippery slope thinking that is based in the emotional fear and not evidence because it ultimately weakens your arguments and hurts people over time. I want to encourage you to avoid that. Secondly, I want to encourage you this. Don't just do whatever you want. Reflect on the flesh versus the spirit. Friends, we are free. We are free, 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 free. All right, I think there's a commercial about that. Forget the commercial. I can't. Anyway, sorry. We are free. But listen, what Paul says in this section is so powerful. We are not free to do whatever we want. When I am upset with you, I do not, as a Christian, have the freedom to just act on the impulse without submitting it to God's Word. When I have an urge, I don't have the freedom to act on it without submitting it to God's Word. When I have this desire to lash out or to hold bitterness or to hold forgiveness, I don't have the freedom to do whatever I want, but I don't have to submit to more and better rules. I need to submit to the Spirit of God to walk me toward love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so I want to give you this prayer, and then I'm going to be done. I want to encourage you to, to pray this prayer this week, all right? Real simple, real simple. You can take this, or you can leave it, but it's here for you. There you go. Dear God, please help me to use my freedom with love, not entitlement, in mind. Remind me not just to do whatever I want in the moment, but, but to walk by the Spirit today. Help me to use my freedom with love, not entitlement. Entitlement says, I have the right to be upset with you. I have the right to be angry. You violated a rule of mine. I've maybe violated a rule of yours. I don't care, but I have a right to. The rules are on my side. The law of the land is on my side. I am sitting behind the law. I'm sitting behind the rules, and I'm entitled to them. And here's the prayer, God. Help me to use my freedom with love, not entitlement in mind. Remind me not just to do whatever I want in the moment, but to walk by the Spirit today. The entire law, Paul writes, is fulfilled in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. So friends, don't give in to the slippery soap. If you give a mouse a cookie, all you've done is give him a cookie. He's not going to ruin the house, I promise you. Love and not law is the better way. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be in this hard and good text this morning. I pray that you would give us the freedom and the courage to live in this sometimes awkward and hard space of realizing that we will never come under more and better rules for our future 
that never controls us. It is our will. It is our spirit. And so I pray that you would help us to walk by the spirit, that in the decision moment that we have in the quietness of our heart, in our soul, in our mind, when we have a decision to make, a response to people around us, it's there that I'd ask you to help us to walk by the Spirit so that the freedom that we have will not be squeezed out by a religious set of rules, but will be fanned into flame by walking with the Spirit so that we can find the freedom that we were made for to experience and to give love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Father, we love you, and I pray that you'd help us to walk in freedom and walk by your Spirit and not just do whatever we want. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.